0: There's some very interesting stuff coming out of modern American politics. People like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, policies like the Green New Deal. President Trump has certainly spread a toxic politics, but in reaction to him, perhaps, a more hopeful future arises. Andres Benal is at the centre of all this. He worked with AOC before she was a household name, and he's doing doctoral research on the Green New Deal. So today's chat is about all this what is fundamentally different about AOC. How important are the social movements around her? We discuss the Green New Deal and how it emerged through intersectional movements around class, race and climate. We also look at the kind of economic approach that might be required to make it happen. Climate, upending changing politics, these are the conversations of our times. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. Welcome to the show, Andres. Happy to be here. Great. we're we're very excited to have you in Australia, teaching us all about interesting things that are going on in America.
1: First time here, and it's been amazing so far. So thank you so much for welcoming me to your country.
0: So to begin, I'm wanting you to explain to our audience as much as anything else. You've done so many things. You're an academic. You're also an activist. You support political candidates. You're an intellectual Tell us about what you do that makes you a change maker.
1: Well, I travel around the United States and now internationally as well, and I try to to uh, to speak to people that are becoming interested in creating change. Both those that have been involved in these efforts for a while now, and maybe those that are just now coming around because they see, they look around and they they see that something needs to happen. And I try to explain ideas that are oftentimes considered complicated or kind of marginalized to academic spaces or just to, you know, exclusive political circles and and have these conversations with everyday average working people and organize around that as well. Mm. And um, as a researcher, I try to contribute this process uh, of doing this work with that kind of critical thinking tradition of of trying to find the ideas that are going to help us break through to, uh, mm. to another way forward.
0: Mm. And we're going to get to it, but in particular around the economy, yeah?
1: Yes, absolutely. In particular around the economy, uh, well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very interdisciplinary, so that kind of speaks to my, my training. As an undergraduate in college, I studied philosophy, then I studied uh, organizational and leadership studies, and then I kind of tried to, in my own crazy way, put it all together by studying public and urban policy. So I come from different uh, methodological traditions, kind of different ways of seeing and understanding the world. So in terms of the economy, thinking about how the economy and and the environment don't have to be in opposition Mm. and how we have to think about this as uh, two very interdependent um, parts of our our lives and our experiences, as well as the area of uh, public finance and kind of the macro economy in particular.
0: Yeah. Excellent. You know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is... Why have you got yourself into such an interesting place, trying to interpret how uh, a new economy can work for this new climate change age? For instance, I'm interested in the long story, if you don't mind. Like I know, like all the way back, you know, some of the key influences on you that have helped. um, So I guess turn you into the person you are today.
1: Yeah, I think it all starts when when I touch base in the United States for the very first time. I was three years old. And um, I had come from Bogota, Colombia, where where I was born, and my father left the United States first a couple months before my mom and I did. And as I was growing up, my parents invested a lot in kind of a critical education at home. And so the way that I made sense of being an immigrant in another country, knowing that I was different because uh, I spent my childhood in Chicago and I was one of the only Latin American people there— certainly maybe the only person that spoke a different language and all these kinds of things. So <clears throat> making sense of that, uh, it helped that my parents spoke to me a lot about inequality and, 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 and power and history. My, my father loves history a lot. So I received a lot of that education very early on. And so when I was introduced to something like the civil rights movement in elementary school and the work that somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. did, it, it all kind of started to connect so I, I, I knew right away that I wanted to be a part of, uh, of efforts just in general, even as a kid, that contributed to, to fighting things that maybe at that time I, I didn't understand that well, but that, that seemed unjust and unfair. And, you know, experiencing racism also, I think, is a big part of that too. And, and knowing that um, it's, it's a reality or why when we visit Colombia, when we used to visit Colombia, you know, why was there so much more poverty over there? Why did you see certain things over there and not here? And trying to make that connection in some sort of a systemic way played a huge role.
0: So your home life was, a sounds like a really important political space for you, intersecting with your school life and then your visits back to Colombia.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But both of my parents struggle to to leave their home and face these very difficult conditions in the United States were very very influential like that story of of struggling and trying to make something of yourself um and i think the kind of key component there was was i wasn't seeing that as just like everybody can just be wealthy and make it and that kind of story i was understanding and making sense of it as uh these are the forces that separate people in the world and create different class distinctions and and create different kind of places in society and that people are very much encouraged to just know your place and stay in your place. So that's, that's what stuck to me the most. So perhaps as a teenager, and I think this is really interesting too, because when I entered high school, my my father and my parent, my family was doing a lot better for themselves. You know, my my father is a, a pediatrician. He's a physician. So he was doing quite well, but um, the alienation that one feels as one enters the middle class or whatever that, that's supposed to mean uh, in, in an environment where you're being pressured to adapt and kind of conform to a certain lifestyle of consumerism and of like a shallowness that I think the shallow dimension to that where it's just about what you have and your possessions and, 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 and the way that young people are indoctrinated to, to be that way. I think was a big part of like the struggles I had as an adolescent and the frustrations and anxiety that I developed at that time where I I didn't feel, I didn't know like where I fit in. I didn't know how to make sense of my life at that time. And later I started to make sense of that through thinking about the world politically uh, on on different sides, you know, not just why in, in high school there was a cafeteria, there were two cafeterias and it seemed like, Although it wasn't formally separated, it was informally separated as to all the the, the more working class, poor kids or those that came from more Mexican or immigrant descendancy sat in one area that was called the pit. And then there was like this other cafeteria, which looked a lot nicer and all the much more upper middle class or wealthier uh, students hung around there oh my god you know and
0: chicago, so chicago bloody hell this was
1: actually texas, oh, texas. So, yes <laughs> so i moved i ended up moving when i was 10 to south texas right which is a whole other uh journey in of itself but but that was really uh the beginning of an awakening for me to 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 sit with that uh that just very powerful First-hand experience with cultural and political differences in power,
0: and it sounds like it was a it, like you're describing it as class and race, yes, all together,
1: all together, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and a lot of times in in, in today's era, we have trouble. Um, Making sense of how those things are are intersecting. And and a part of it, I think, is because neoliberal governments and forces have really taken advantage of things like identity and and social groups and use that in a rather superficial way um and and taking away the whole purpose of something like intersectionality which was always about class and always about structural power and and the way that there are real uh, you know both real material differences amongst people and the way like culture and language and 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 ideology and all these things are used to justify these material differences um and so uh, yes thinking about how those things connected was big because maybe it was this helped too cuz in south texas the population is like 90% Latino or Hispanic. So identity-wise, people are, 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 you know, share uh, Spanish last names. But if you kind of go in deeper and you see the, the, the differences amongst, you know, who's wealthy, who has the power, who controls, whose families do what in the city, whose families come from what countries or what areas, and how does the whole global geopolitics of that make sense? So... You know, that forced me also, I think, to think about things on that intersecting level.
0: Yeah. Wow. So you went to university. How did those experiences inform your choices there?
1: I went from just really, really frustrated. And I think this speaks to a lot of young people's experiences today. um, A lot of anxiety, you know, depression, alienation, um, certain struggles and, and kind of difficulties within family life as well. And in university, I took a philosophy class because I always wanted to study philosophy, but I never felt like <clears throat> I had the opportunity to do so. So I took a philosophy class and that started me on this th- this pathway of trying to get to like the core of things and trying to deconstruct my own experiences and what I was seeing in the world. And I kind of just really fell into it. Uh, and and, and uh, it started this you know, dialectical tension between on one hand, making sense of the meaning of my life and like the meaning of death too. Like all these things, right? All these existential questions, I was really into existentialism. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you want to explain that for our audience? But might not be um, just, just
1: kind of how, like how, how we make sense of how we exist and the fact that we have like a consciousness. We, we're, we're these thinking beings that, that, uh, that know we're alive for some reason, you know? <laughs> um, and, and we're very aware of that. And of course, like language and culture and all these other things are are part of that as well. Uh, So then what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that we know that at the end of this story, we all die? Uh, And how do we make uh, sense and, and how do we make meaning out of our life while we're here, right? So those questions were always very important to me and different existentialists have different answers for that. But I was always really, really compelled by the idea that we have to create the meaning in our lives. We have to like be a part of something big. It's not all just about... Um, being happy, but it's about being a part of something and and affirming your life in that way. So uh, thinkers everywhere from Sartre to Nietzsche to all these other people that were very much part of that. That and as well, political philosophy. So the big systems of the world and the big debates around what kind of society should we strive for? Those two tensions and those two questions very much from the beginning set the terms for how I see the world and experience my life.
0: Wow. Gosh. I mean, I think it's, I mean, that's the extraordinary opportunity when people get to go to university in a sense is that there are uh, some dedicated years where people can explore these big questions in a way that you rarely get in your life. Some people find it through religious practice. Others find it through uh, an intellectual practice that you're describing where they can search and interpret and understand meaning.
1: Yeah, and and it's a real shame that today we're trying to turn higher education into something that's going to produce like little workers that are going to go out. And you, the whole, whole point of getting an education now is just to like see how you can get into fit into a job or whatnot. And I think that's a real tragedy because I always saw the purpose of higher education as this process that helped develop me mm. as a human being and as a member of the society. And, and And that is getting really lost in the debate right now.
0: So how does that... Deep thinking connect to political life for you to actually being connected to campaigns and action
1: and so forth.
0: How did that how, how did that transition happen?
1: There's two factors I think that that lead me in that direction. Right before university, when I was around 17 years old, I, I attended this leadership development institute that was organizing these experiences for young Latinos all across the United States. And what this did was uh, it organized a youth legislative session. So I went, I was like 17 year old and I went to this experience and I get there and they bombard you with like this experience that you're not expecting. You're 17 and you're kind of like, what is going on? And you have to elect your own government. You have to run for offices and make, give speeches and all these things, Uh, form a a Senate, a house and all these things that 16 and 17 year olds kind of never do. And the whole point of it is to give you that sense of agency and put it in your hands and give you experience with power. And so the rationale for this was uh, from the founder was to provide experiences that were going to construct the infrastructure for a future Latino leadership in the country, given that the experience of the civil rights movement was kind of dying off. Those leaders were getting older, they were retiring, and that base for Latino leadership in the country was kind of evaporating. And so he really believed that in order to do that, you had to give young people these experiences very, very early on. You realize, like, I want to be a part of this larger purpose that's based on ideals, it's based on a purpose, and it's not just my purpose as an individual, but something that is collective in nature. So that was really, really important. And I... Came back to these programs and these, you know, these different leadership camps and whatnot <clears throat> as a counselor. So I was coming back in my 20s, eventually as an educational director of one of these programs. And around that time, I kept hearing about this other superstar who was from the Bronx in New York. <laughs> I
0: wonder who that could be. I'm scratching my head. <laughs> yeah. and
1: everybody kept hearing about her. And in fact, the founder of this organization, National Hispanic Institute, had written a book and she wrote like the introduction to it. Or something like that, and she was like nineteen. And I was like, "Who the hell is this person?" Uh, it's fascinating. Um, and so, because I was in Texas, I didn't I didn't meet this person for a long time. But finally, at like an event that brought a lot of people together, uh, I, I met her, her name is of course Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. So we just became friends. We became good buddies, and and we had a lot in common, and we were, you know, part of these these experiences and these organizations. So that was very important for me. On one hand, and on the other hand, I finish my undergrad later in life. And I'm trying to make sense of how do, how do I, how can I apply this, all these lessons that I've learned into some kind of, uh, you know, political future. There were moments where I felt like I was going to end up um, having to go into the private sector or something like that. And I just, it wasn't for me. I felt like I I have to continue to either be an organizer or be an academic. That was always kind of like uh, the tension. So I end up deciding to go to New York city to start a PhD program because I wanted to do a case study or, or a dissertation on worker owned businesses and democratic control of workplaces. And in New York city in 2014, an initiative is started by the city council to start financing these efforts and start organizing people in communities, particularly low income working class, uh, predominantly women communities, predominantly people of color, to form these democratic businesses. So I moved there for that. And it all just so happens that one of my few friends in New York, when I moved there, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So we're just like hanging out, you know, every now and then, grabbing a drink, uh, talking about life, talking about our future plans. Um, you know, she had experienced some tragedies in her life with the passing of her father around a little bit earlier than that too. So we were kind of just making sense of where we go into the future. And all of that then gets disrupted when donald trump is elected president in 2016 so that kind of like is like a big boom so how did it impact well it's uh it's it's a bit of a crisis it's a bit of a crisis of meaning but at the same time i know many of us saw that coming because a big part of my education was trying to trace this history of neoliberalism and and as i'm getting older figuring out that the options that I was given given in middle school and in high school of a Bill Clinton, a John Kerry, you know, an Al Gore, that sort of thing, which at the time when I was really young, I was like, yes, right? Like if when you're when you're 16 in Texas and everybody wants to go to war with Iraq, everybody around you thinks it's like that's a brilliant idea. George Bush, George W. Bush himself is from Texas. The war on terror is it's it's it is in its height. Uh, 9/11 just happens, right? So, like, you, it, it, it's it's everywhere. The only thing you're given is is uh, John Kerry and Bill Maher in the media. <laughs> you think like that's that's resistance, right? And then I'm getting older. I'm like, wait a second, like <laughs> those were the options we had, <laughs> man. So tracing that history of how this narrative of the end of history, this you know this one book that's written in 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 the, in the early 90s. About the collapse of the, of, the, of the Soviet Union and the triumph of this one vision that I think the United States with, with Reagan, Margaret Thatcher in the UK put forward as the only alternative. There is no alternative. History has ended. This is it. This is the best we can do as humanity. This kind of system. Inherently, you know what they call a, a, a free market capitalist economy and society is the best we can do. We can just kind of maybe tinker around the edges a little bit. Or if we're trying to reform it, let's try to use market incentives and market logic so that uh, entrepreneurs could arise from the ashes.
0: Don't use the state.
1: Don't (laughs) use the state at all because that's inefficient, uh, you know, ineffective. It's all about uh, incentivizing entrepreneurs to take care of all aspects of society. So tracing that history, learning about the late nineties and the protests against the WTO learning about a very particular kind of globalization, you know, neoliberal globalization being inspired by the Obama campaign and then being disillusioned by the results of, of that presidency being a part of occupy. All of these things are kind of influencing me and starting to realize like this system can't hold on much longer. Like something is going to crack because the consensus between center left and center right is not doing anything and history is coming back and it's coming back strong. And so when Trump announces that he's running for president, I'm kind of thinking at first, I'm like, this is like a a reflection of, of, in a lot of ways, who we are as a culture. I mean, the the reality television obsessed culture has put forward their icon. And he's also using this, this xenophobic proto-fascist rhetoric. He's got, These like neo-fascists around him, you know, he's being very careful, you know, very strategic in how he is speaking to working class Americans and blaming immigrants and migrants and, you know, Mexicans who he just sees all Latin Americans as Mexicans. Right. (laughs) It starts to like really solidify in a strategic agenda that it doesn't seem like anybody else has. It's new. And then the primary is going on and he's just destroying the Republican establishment one by one. He's using humor. He's like, you know, he's a this this master at manipulation and at communications. And I'm like, this guy can win. And everybody's kind of making fun of it. And 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 I know the the Clinton campaign wanted him to win because they, they were convinced it would be a blowout if he got the nomination. And I was getting increasingly tense. But I went into that general election somewhat optimistic and it was just a a terrible night. You know, I remember I was sitting there in a little room at my university and just watching those results come in. You're like, holy crap, what is what's going to happen? What is the what's the future of the world? I mean, he and and I knew that he was going to have a very particular stance on climate change, get us out of the Paris Accords. We were just going to lose those four years at least. So that was a very scary time and I feel like we all had the responsibility then to, to figure out what are we going to do because if we learned anything, if I learned anything from these leadership development experiences, is like not wait for those with authority or the adults to just solve everything. Sometimes you got to take initiative to be a part of something and make something happen and AOC that December, December of 2016 decides to go to Standing Rock in in North Dakota, where they were forcing a pipeline and they wanted to start doing fracking on, through indigenous land, mm. so she just goes. She gets on a road trip, and the other day I I went on Facebook and I went back to her Facebook to find exactly what date this was. So it was December of 2016. She starts doing these videos, like she uh, creates a GoFundMe, and drives to Standing Rock, hangs out with uh, many of the elders and and the protesters and whatnot. <clears throat> she has these these stories of. You know, randomly in the middle of the night, these people with like guns and this uh, military shows up and nobody's sure if they're paramilitary, if they're private mercenaries, you know, it was serious business over there. And, and being from Colombia, you know, I'm very mindful of this history of paramilitary forces, which is something that I would never thought would start happening to the U.S. But with all of this like border politics and border rhetoric and, and, and the increasing fascistification.
0: <laughs> oh, with the authoritarianism? <laughs> yes, Maybe. the increasing
1: authoritarianism <laughs> that, that's kind of growing in uh, organizations like ICE, like the Border Patrol, like the police. We have the black... See, it's all connected, right? Because we have like the Black Lives Matter movement happening around this time too. And it's like they're deploying paramilitary forces. It's
0: like it's the new system of... A new mode of accumulation. A yeah. mo- and Trump represents... Trump's not... It's not about Trump. It's about this application of a new mode of accumulation almost this nationalism and this authoritarianism it's so
1: nasty right it 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 is absolutely uh she comes back and we go to a training for one of these leadership development programs and we're in this like ranch in texas and she's just like uh you know i got a little announcement and there's like a small group of us she's like i'm gonna run for congress and you know it, it was just like i really admired her for just making that bold move it's a bold move to make. it's a
0: huge bold move (laughs) how old was she 28 (laughs) i love it she's 28
1: she had been working as a bartender for some time now so then she makes this bold move like i'm gonna run for congress she starts filling us in a little bit about justice democrats and these people who were in the bernie sanders campaign who had inspired all of us because if one kind of good thing came from that tragedy was how much support the Bernie Sanders campaign got and he came came out of nowhere. So th- the, the, the antidote to this hateful authoritarianism was there as well. Yeah. At least I believe so.
0: Well, I think the two things are f- still in contest, yes, right? Yes. They're still fighting. Yeah. And it's not clear which one will win, but it's tricky to fight authoritarian nationalism. Oh, but absolutely. I love that in the United States, we can very clearly see the alternative.
1: Yes. I think, I think so as well. And, um, He's doing it. the Sanders campaign and that movement, which and that's the thing it's a movement. The thing I love about one about you know the US and having to force myself to have some pride in something about the US <laughs> is is this uh, history of social movement building that uh, I see coming out of the civil rights movement and learning how to connect that with the good things of the New Deal and the organizing in and throughout the 30s and the 40s. And to see how the inadequacies and the failures of the New Deal, the the ways that that excluded certain people, the whiteness, the, whiten- the white supremacy of it, you know, that even though we were we were doing these great things, these projects, you know, all these things, it was still kind of embedded in this other, you know, toxic history that we have, this you know white supremacist settler colonialism that we have in the United States. Then we see the civil rights movement be like. Okay, these advancements did happen. We we do have kind of social security. We have all these public goods now, but we're being excluded. We've been excluded for since the beginning. We, uh, the promise of Reconstruction after abolition was never met, and and so the civil rights movement happens. The women's rights movement happens and evolves, unfolds as well. Gay liberation, all these kinds of things, kind of leading up to the environmental movement in the seventies. I think the Bernie movement was the spark that in AOC's campaign starts to materialize these intersecting forces of the, the, the spirit of MLK and that civil rights movement with some of the policy visions of that time period itself, the sixties, but also of what we accomplished in the thirties and forties with a very strong labor movement there, you know, and you had very active socialist parties in the United States at that time as well. So trying to bring all these things together, I think over that year and a half that AOC campaigned, her own thinking was evolving and she as a person was evolving and this vision was forming.
0: So let's, I want to explore this, the Green New Deal yes. and how it emerged, yeah. right? So um, were you, like, when was it first conceived as, when was it first used, identified? When did people start to think we could pull all these together through this frame?
1: The Green New Deal comes out of this social movement organizing that, and social movement based campaign that AOC and the community around her. I mean, really, you got and Sunrise, right? Like, let's and and, and, and hats Sunrise. Hats off to Sunrise, right? Yeah, What's crazy, which is a,
0: which is a youth movement in the United States working around climate change for people who don't know.
1: Yes, so at the very beginning of AOC's campaign, too, somebody I had met at at like a conference messages me on Facebook and they're like, hey, I'm starting this organization called Sunrise. Can, we, we want fellows. Can you, like, publish this? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> it's, like, bizarre. <laughs> uh, a lot of weird things were happening in New York at that time. Explosive, creative, amazing things. Yeah, yeah.
0: And it's sort of inspiring, like, for anyone listening to this show, it shows what anyone can do, right? Absolutely.
1: I mean, and, like, these, these like, little projects that that we often want to do with our friends, like, they have this huge potential. And even if they don't work out the first time, it, it creates the seeds for something. Yeah. So... Aoc's kind of working with her her community district 14 in in New York and I'm like witnessing all of these amazing people coming out for her knocking on doors calling people volunteering creating events organizing events like it's a whole thing around what she's representing and what she's talking about uh, and increasingly as it looks as though maybe she can pull this off which kind of just like also came out of nowhere <laughs> yeah amazing and, and it really starts to solidify. In the debate, in the first debate with her, with, with her opponent, with Joe Crowley, where it was so obvious how outmatched he was by this like significantly younger woman, just on every level, charisma wise, intellectually, everything, everything, everything. So all of a sudden it's like, holy crap, she can pull this off. So it's, it's like, all right, well, what do we do if we win? (laughs) And climate change starts to become that central thing. Because what many of us were were understanding and what she was understanding was that climate change, the crisis, the environmental crisis was the opportunity to have an intersectional politics to bring together the economy, social issues and environmental issues as part of one thing, as opposed to like this history of fragmenting everything and being like, well, that's this and that this is this issue issue over here, this issue over there. Um, So as soon as she wins... Uh, and also it just so happens that climate change, um, that that uh, the Sunrise movement is growing in popularity as well. That kind of unites right when she wins. She uh, when she gets elected officially and she's going to go to for her training in Congress. You know, she tells a story that I think in Philadelphia on the way to D.C., there there were these kids hanging out that invited her to talk and they were part of Sunrise. And they said, look, we're going to we're going to occupy Nancy Pelosi's office. Are you with us? And she was just like, holy, you know.
0: Ping, ping, but 18-year-olds, what, what shall I do?
1: What decision do I make? I just got elected. I'm already upsetting a bunch of these establishment people. What do I do? And so she made the call to join them and to try to do it in the most graceful way possible, to try to balance that tension between pressuring but not being but Not, not doing belligerent. It. Yes, not belligerent. And she pulled it off be- oh. beautifully. And, and I think that that is, boom, the Green New Deal is born, and we just— Took down fifty years of failed environmental policy, at least as a paradigm, as as an agenda, as as a, the way we frame the entire thing, goes from because, uh, neoliberals were talking about a green new deal, like in two thousand eight, uh, Thomas Friedman wrote a column. He writes he writes this article about a green new deal, but he's talking about these cap and trade systems, the carbon tax, all market, all market based. Yeah, all market-based kind of stuff. Then later, you know, in the Obama administration with with Van Jones, who gets hired to be this environmental leader, it's still based on, you know, incentivizing entrepreneurs to come up with the green businesses that are going to save us all. And, And he has an article where he explicitly says that only the private sector has the resources to address climate change. And that was what everybody was thinking back then. So... Then flash forward, AOC wins. Sunrise is, is on the rise, and this Green New Deal is being proposed. You got to give credit to the Green Party as well because they they were fighting that fight on very very similar grounds before. We put forward this different idea that's drawing inspiration from the New Deal, obviously, but more than anything from the mass public mobilization and and the responsibility that the government took to make sure. That certain goals were being met to revitalize the economy, to direct the economy, and to provide a new deal for American society. And that's kind of where I come into play in in that movement, uh, as because I was advising AOC in in different areas. But at the end, it was increasingly in a policy role. And my PhD was in public policy, as I was like, "Well, I mean, I contribute something here."
0: Yeah, I've got, I've got some. <laughs> I got some ideas. <laughs>
1: So at that time, it just so happened that I had been researching this thing called modern monetary theory for about a year because I was so disillusioned with the answers and the debate on the, the macro economy, because anytime we propose anything that's progressive, the, the establishment and centrists are like, oh, that's nice, but it's, it's too expensive. How are you going to pay for it? So we, we had been getting into these debates that rested on like where we're we gonna pick the money from dollar for dollar. I always felt like we were arguing on the rights terms, and on on neoliberal terms.
0: It's because you were
1: because we were, <laughs> <laughs> and something seemed wrong about all of that. It, it, the move always was to make what we you know we call the middle class you know working class people feel like their taxes were gonna go up. And as wages are stagnating, as people are struggling, they're like, you're going to raise my taxes, you know? So people are – people's also uh, – their animosity towards those that are doing a little worse than them or those that may be, may, may be not as privileged as them is also being exploited at that time. So it all collapses. Mm. Um, so I had heard about this other idea called modern monetary theory theory. The first year I was in New York and then I didn't pay any attention to it for like th- four years and I'm like, all right, I'm going to give these people a chance because they have a cool logo and the name sounds kind of interesting. Well, that's what matters, right? <laughs> yeah, that's always what matters. <laughs> so I started looking into it and and like, I, you know, it was blowing my mind because it was always the intuition I had that, wait, how did we get out of the Great Depression? How do we accomplish all these things? Did we like find money in places? There wasn't, there, everything had collapsed. Yeah. Um, and this, the very notion of money itself, given my influences in critical theory and in philosophy, I was very skeptical that money was this like finite thing, but rather that it was uh, it, it was kind of like a social construction. It was a legal social construction that helped organize um, society. So I start learning about MMT, modern monetary theory, and it starts to make a lot of sense on how you know there's a en- there has to be an entity that chooses. The what's called the unit of account that we use or the dollar and that's the United States and they invented that thing they didn't, they didn't, they didn't grow out of the ground the, the US government formed and said we're going to you know through a lot of political legal debates they said we're going to choose a dollar and it's going to come from the federal government and we have authority over it and we'll give charters to banks so they can do lending and all that stuff too but at the end of the day it comes from the United States government and so they issue this currency and they can't run out of that thing because they issue it it's like Delta or, or uh, Qantas airlines is never going to run out of frequent flyer miles because they just made it. Up. It's like that thing. Right. So it's this question that moves away the conversation from this notion, like the particular number on a balance sheet or an account and the real important question, which is the resources. That's what's there. That's what's real. If you overspend, it's because you've run out of resources and that's causes all kinds of problems. Right. And so, you know, Stephanie Kelton likes to talk about this that during World War II, uh, John Maynard Keynes wrote this book called, or a little pamphlet called, How to Pay for the War. And it wasn't about where we find the money, it's about how do we resource this thing? How do we mobilize and how do we take account or evaluate what we have available and what we need to produce to meet this goal? So, similarly, we have this, this uh, rhetoric and this discourse that, uh, that emerges. Around climate change of mobilizing for war at the scale of a world war, except it's not to kill one another. It's to save the planet and it's to transform society in its entirety, transform the way that we produce things, what we produce, the laws around uh, how we produce, uh, guarantee clean air, clean water, justice, environmental so I guess.
0: You know, I, and I'm I'm no expert on MMT, and I, I would encourage if people want to look into it more that Stephanie Kilton's book, and there are yes. other there are other you can Google it, and there's lots of stuff out there. But if if not now, when would we explore new and interesting ways to, to look at how our economy works? And it's a pretty sound
1: yeah. And it's it's this notion that what we need to be thinking about at the level of our government is how do we resource. And mobilize saving
0: the, the planet. planet, humanity's life on the planet. Yes,
1: yes, it's, it's pretty
0: big, important question, right? It's
1: huge, and so it kind of brings to attention the fact that this question of how to use public budgets is a political question as well. It's not, it's not governed by independent laws of supply and demand. No, this is a political question around how do we want to use our resources.
0: And it's, I guess it's, and then it's, it comes back to the original thing about the AOC campaign, which is that it requires this intersectional, this yes. combined, powerful, enormous movement yes. to make it happen. We need good thinking about how to run the economy, and it needs to, but it needs to be endorsed and supported by the biggest social movement possible. I guess
1: right. And as you mentioned a little earlier, nobody asked this question: How are you going to pay for it when we're going to go to war or assassinate other? people's leaders or whatnot uh, or drop drones fairly easily all the time right so it's just congress appropriates a budget boom that's it that's it that's literally it um then there's other questions there about developing countries with quotation marks or the global south the
0: global south has been printing money (laughs) before and it hasn't worked out so well but certainly we like time for exploring
1: new ideas yeah and you know there's an imperialist relationship there Mm. that's central to that conversation. So this is the time to explore new ideas, to explore why certain countries don't have that kind of authority and power. You know, what are the, the real structural dynamics there?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I want us to, st- to, to to sort of draw back, this has been such a fantastic story about um, the hope that sits inside the US that some people who listen to this may have known and had glimpses of, some may not have even known. And I guess the, the story is, is that there is the capacity to achieve major change Many of our countries around the, the planet have difficult leaders. Uh, we've got some difficult leadership in Australia at the moment. There's challenging leadership in the United Kingdom. You know, there's difficult leadership around Europe and in many global south countries like Brazil and the Philippines. Like we've got, and, let's, and let's not ignore China and what's going on across, across China with Taiwan and Hong Kong. I want to draw you back and just ask you, okay, you've, you've had an extraordinary experience, particularly over the last three or four years, but obviously over the course of your political life. What's the biggest lesson that you have to share? Um, you know, our audience are keen and eager to sort of to pick up on how to do things differently. If there was one thing that you could suggest to them that they could think about doing differently, what would it be, For, particularly around social change?
1: <laughs> what a question, right? <laughs> I think I think we're in a moment where we need to not be afraid to be bold and ambitious. And we need to lead with that. And we need to lead with that in a way that creates space for other people to join our movement and build those coalitions. And nobody's perfect because we've been living in a very unjust, oppressive, screwed up world our entire lives. And so part of that process is to help one another grow as people too, and become better organizers, better members of all our different societies, more international in in the sense that we see one another as united for this causes, you know, against these oligarchs who are also united internationally as well. Um, So to, to be unapologetic in being bold, to not be turned away or intimidated by like these technical things that, that, that are thrown at us to understand that, If we have the political will, then we can overcome this climate crisis. And in the process, we could also just create a society that is grounded on well-being and quality of life. As opposed to this kind of race that we had, this madness that we have now, where everybody is being pressured to, in a way, be perfect and be extremely wealthy and powerful and have status And that is making us incredibly depressed and anxious and alienating and alienated. It's 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 in the United States. It's part of what I believe to be a mental health crisis, an addiction crisis, uh, which is all grounded in this idea of well-being, quality of life, and not value, not investing in that. And so, organize to be bold, to transform the world, and in the process, create the spaces that are going to help us all evolve together.
0: Yeah, change the world. And in doing so, change ourselves. Yes. Good people have said similar ideas. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Changemakers. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tabassal. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. If you'd like to keep in touch with Andres Bernal, you can follow him on Twitter at A-N-D-R-E-S in theory. That's Andres in theory. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. Our audio producer is Jules Wookera. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at Sydney.edu.au backslash policy-lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.
1: mark pesci and i'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast the next billion seconds listen for free at podcast one australia.com.au search the next billion seconds podcast or download the new podcast one australia app
0: podcast one